So open God's word with me, if you would, to First uh, Thessalonians chapter four this morning. I want to read the text that I'm going to. Well, I was planning on covering, which would be chapter four, verses one to seven. That is not reality for me. Reality would look like chapter four, verses one to three. So um, I had big goals, but God has other plans and it's good. So let's pray that he uh, blesses this as we hear it and as we receive the teaching from it. Chapter four, verse one, continuing the thought from his prayer in chapter three, verse 11, says, finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. We would all say amen. And we all say amen until it gets down to our feet, to reality, where it touches the hidden parts of our lives when we come to this text. Because this is not easy. This is a struggle in our culture. It's a struggle in our day, and I think that it's a testimony as we read this text that the word of the Lord is timeless. The text we are looking at today could not be more relevant. The times we live in testify to that. It's as if this text was written yesterday, and I'm sure that I'm not going to do justice to the text this morning. And so I'm going to give you basically kind of an overview of those first three verses. And I hope that even in that, that God will use it to help conform us more and more into Christ's likeness. That's the goal that I have. That's the prayer that I have in my heart. And I hope that and I pray for that because the overarching topic here of this passage is knowing God's will. God's will for believers is laid out for us here in this text. What a glorious truth. Sometimes there are aspects of God's will that we don't know. We can't quite look into yet because God has a a divine will that yet sometimes is not completely revealed to us. But here in this text, we have a revelation from God about his will. This one we know. This is God's will for you, your sanctification, namely that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's a topic we need to address this morning because it's a topic that's all around us. The particular topic here is, is given as a command God commands us to walk in personal sanctification here. And here's how we do it. He gives us instructions even. How about that? I mean, he tells you and then he tells you how. It's important to understand that. It's important to understand this text, but it's also important to understand the power behind the command that he gives in this text. It doesn't come from you. It comes from above. In the first seven verses here, the apostle, this is going to be your outline, by the way. The Apostle Paul teaches us God's will for us by, number one, exhorting us to follow God's instructions carefully. Verses one and two. 
It's a reminder of what he's already taught them. And he also teaches us God's will for us, number two, by instructing us to abstain from sexual immorality. Very clear. Verses three to seven. He'll elaborate a little bit more in verse eight, but we'll get to that next time. Actually, we'll get to four through eight next time. But here in one to seven, the apostle is calling for us to live a sanctified life that is pleasing to God. It's a mighty task. There's some mighty goals for the Christian. But this calling, you must understand, is contingent on one key element. One key truth. Regeneration. Sanctification is the outflow of regeneration. You must be regenerated in order to walk in sanctification. Apart from the power of God, the Holy Spirit in regeneration, these commands are absolutely impossible for fallen men and women. The power to follow God's instructions continually is something that requires the Holy Spirit's illumination to help you understand it, to see what his purpose is in it. The desire to even do the next thing that we're instructed to do, to abstain from sexual immorality. Well, that certainly requires the Holy Spirit's conviction, not our cultural views of the world, right? The culture doesn't say abstain. What's the culture say? Partake, enjoy, celebrate. These two things, this desire and this 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 power to do what God is calling us to do in his text has to come from above. It comes from God, the Holy Spirit, who comes into us at regeneration to empower us to magnify Christ. See, your sanctification, saints, is not so much about making a better you. It's about revealing the one who called you. It's about magnifying the mighty supremacy of Christ's atoning work at the cross that said, I can take a wretched sinner and make him into a trophy of grace. Something we can't do. We can't do it for ourselves and we can't do it for others. So what we need to understand when we come to sanctification, just so we have a foundation here to stand on, okay? We need to understand this. Sanctification is the fruit of the Holy Spirit's work that grows out of a regenerated heart. That easy to understand? That's what it is. And basically that means that we cannot produce this fruit of sanctification in our own strength. It takes a supernatural strength to do this. The dunamis of God, the power of God unto salvation, has the power to produce sanctification that is actually progressive and one day will be completed in us. And if you're in this place where you look at the the commands of Scripture and you look at the New Testament commands as well as the Old Testament commands, you think, I can just do these. I can work hard. I can try to be a better Christian. You're going to be nothing but frustrated. You're going to be discouraged. And you're going to gain absolutely nothing unless you have been regenerated. Unless you've been given a new heart, the heart of Christ. Here's why. Sanctification is simply the fruit of... That the Christian bears because we're rooted in Christ. We are in the vine and the fruit comes from the root. And it produces and it blesses and it encourages others. And it ultimately magnifies the one who it comes from. So here's here's something you need to think about as we read this text, as you meditate on this text this next week or two. 
if the Holy Spirit's fruit that he is calling for here is not being evidenced in your life, it is not the desire of your life or you don't have the power to even desire this, then you need to ask yourself something. Are you rooted in Christ? Are you truly born again? Not that you have perfection in this command to abstain from sexual immorality, but do you have the desire? Do you have a heart that is grieving over this sin and looking to Christ as the only one who can carry you when you're fallen? When you've went down the road, you should have never went down. You know that he will be there to turn you around and bring you back to the full joy that is Ours in his accomplishments. If you don't desire that, if that's not going on in your heart, it could be evidence that you are not born again. And today I'm just pleading with you as we read this text and we look at this, that you would look to Christ. If sexual immorality is dominating your life and Jesus is not, you need to be born again. It doesn't mean you won't struggle with it. But is it the dominating factor of your life? If it is, that means Christ is not. And there's a problem. And God has given us a solution in Christ's atoning work. Remember that as we go through this this morning. Let's look at what the Apostle Paul says about the fruit of sanctification there in verses uh, 1 and 2. Again, as I read this, listen carefully. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus. In other words, through the master himself, we're doing this. The Lord himself is asking and urging you by his authority that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. This is God's will already we're saying here. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. The instructions previously given came from the master and the master now wants you to continue on in them and urge you to do more and more to do what it takes to magnify his lordship over your lives. In these verses, Paul begins to teach us about God's will by exhorting us. To follow God's revealed word, his instructions, and do so continually. I mean, the process of sanctification doesn't just happen like you walk into a church building, hear a sermon, you walk out sanctified. That's not the way it works. I wish it did. It's a continual feeding and feasting on Christ through his word. And then sharing it. You know, the, the, the fruit tree doesn't consume its own fruit. It produces fruit to feed others. When you think about your fruit bearing, you think about it in those terms. You're to bear fruit to nourish others around you. But you've got to continually be tapped into the root. And the root is the word. Paul is saying, look, this is where you're going to find God's revealed will for your life. Quit, Quit trying to be a better person. Look at Christ's commands. Look at his accomplishments. Look what he's given you to do for his glory. He's going to give you what you need to do. Don't get hung up in the peripheral. Don't get hung up in all the rituals and traditions of the world around you. When Paul writes this in verses 1 and 2, he's referring to what he has already taught, obviously, when he first arrived at Thessalonica. He mentions that in chapter 1. He talks about what he taught, how they became imitators, and they began to show the world the glory of Christ through their new conversion, through their turning from idols to the true and living God. 
And I think that if you understand the Apostle Paul, you understand this. The Apostle Paul was an obedient disciple of Jesus. So he taught a lot of things besides preaching the gospel because he did what Jesus commanded. He taught all things that Christ commanded in his evangelism. When he went into a city and proclaimed the gospel, he didn't just walk in and talk about the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. No, he went on to say, and here's what this one who died and rose again says. He taught that, I think, in particularly here because this culture, this is made up of a few Jews, but mostly Greco-Roman pagans, full of perverse morality based on their own religion. I am absolutely sure that the Apostle Paul not only told them what the gospel was, but he also instructed them in what God's morality is, according to Jesus. He likely taught them about God's view of morality that Christ himself taught and talked about probably most likely Christ's view of what sin really is and how it's not just the superficial thing on the outside. Since you need to understand something. The attributes of the sinful desires that we see manifest in our lives, those aren't the problem. The problem is the heart that produced it. Jesus went past the superficial and went to the heart of the matter. And I believe that the Apostle Paul held Christ's teaching on these matters before the church at Thessalonica. And we need to hold this before our church as well. And remember these things, because if you're going to grow in sanctification, you've got to know this revelation. You've got to know what Christ has said about marriage, for instance. Go to Matthew 19. Matthew 19. You want to see your marriage flourish? You want to see your marriage prosper and magnify the work of Christ, which is to represent? Then look at what Jesus says about the sanctity of marriage. Look what it says here. Chapter 19, verse 4. He answered, have you not read that he created them? From the beginning, he who, made, he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, he, he raises the bar on the marriage element of life for most of the pagan culture at this time. You have to understand something about Thessalonica. As I studied it, it's just it's deplorable and it's disgusting. You think our culture's bad. I think there was worse. There's quotes after quote after quote after quote of pagan and, and Roman people who actually talked about how important it was for a man to have a mistress and a concubine. And then that woman who takes care of producing babies. That was acceptable in that culture. It was part of their worship. It was part of even the worship that they would go and partake of in the temple with temple prostitutes as an act of worship. And Jesus says, no, let me tell you something about the sanctity of marriage. God has caused one man and one woman to come together and he has blessed it. And he has made a union there. Because ultimately, that union is to represent the union that we have with Christ himself as his bride. Marriage is a unique gift from God to mankind. And man has tried from the beginning to distort it. Satan has attacked it. It's a never-ending attack on God's will that we see in our culture. I believe that he also taught... 
what Jesus said on adultery in Matthew 5, 27 to 29. And this is where you have to understand that Jesus, he knew what the commands of the Old Testament intended, not just what was written, but he had the authority to say, this is what they mean. There's more behind the written word here, he's saying. Look at this. He said, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Here's how he views that. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Jesus had an elevated view of sexuality as God designed it and for God's purposes, and especially here, lusting after a person who is not your spouse. Now, it says woman, but we can apply it to, I mean, man, but we know that it's applied to both men and women here, okay? It's not an exclusive sin of men that we struggle with adultery or lust. That's something that is part of our fallen humanity. Jesus goes on even in Matthew, or in Mark rather, Mark 7, to sort of roll up why all these things happen and what his view of all of this is in our hearts as we sin against him. Look what it says in Mark 7. It's going to encompass basically every evil desire, including the lust of the eyes, adultery and fornication. 7.21 says this, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. Sexual immorality. It's the same term that we see in our text in Thessalonians. Theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. It wasn't what you ate. It wasn't what you wore that defiled you. It's what was in you that defiled you. I'm sure that the Apostle Paul was teaching that to the Thessalonians. In the culture they lived in, it was necessary. It would be almost like the equivalent of walking into downtown Las Vegas on that night that they're all out on parade. And you have to now disciple these people who have come to faith in Christ. You've got to start from the beginning. You need to understand what marriage is. You need to understand why it's a sin in God's sight. You need to understand the sin problem comes from within, not just from without. So we, we are sure, I am sure, that he was teaching that to the Thessalonians. And it seems that some of them were understanding it because they're actually walking and doing what God has said, following God's word continually, following his instructions and making progress in it. But he wants them to do so more. But I also believe there were some who didn't need as much of just a pat on the back as they did more exhortation or even admonition because they were struggling on going back into their culture. They were struggling with following Christ's commands, seeking his direction, because the culture had a a tie to them. And sexual sin has a tie within you that you cannot easily break on your own. It will require the instruction of the Lord and the power of the Spirit working through that instruction. And that's something we need to think about. these, These are issues today that are the same in Paul's day. We still need this exhortation because some people are tempted to go back to the sin habit they created when they were young. There's a tie there. 
There's an actual physical tie in the brain there that can be broken by a greater satisfaction. The greater satisfaction comes in knowing God in Christ. To know him and his forgiveness, to know him and his grace, to know him and his mercy, his compassion, his loving kindness. That's a greater satisfaction, one that is lasting. You understand this about but our desire for satisfaction, physical satisfaction. Our flesh has no faith. It has indwelling sin remaining there in it. We have a struggle as Christians internally with the flesh. Because the flesh can't believe that something is greater down the road because God promised it. It needs to be satisfied immediately. But God's saying, trust my instruction. Trust in my promises. Continually come back to them. We need to do that. Because I think there are times for all of us as fallen people that it's hard to follow his direction. Because the flesh is drawing you away. So ask yourself this. Are you struggling with sin? I'm not talking about just sexual sin in particular this morning, but all sins that we could deal with and name off. If you're struggling with that, ask yourself this. Is your walk with the Lord growing closer and stronger? Or is it colder and more polluted by this downward spiral of sin after sin because you know there's no way out and you just give up and you give in? God doesn't want that for you. His will for you is sanctification. He wants the best for us because the best magnifies Jesus. So ask yourself, if you're struggling like that, ask yourself, how much time am I spending seeking his instruction, putting it into application? Or am I just bemoaning my sin problem? Saints, that's not repentance. Simply saying you have a sin problem is not the same as confession of a sin issue. You have to follow the Spirit's direction and trust in the Spirit's power to overcome this and produce that kind of sanctification he calls for. We all struggle in walking worthily of Christ and following his instructions. But in, in, go back to 1 Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 to 24, we find something very encouraging. Even though we all struggle in walking worthily of Christ and following his commands faithfully, continually, here in this passage, 23 to 24, we learn that we can have hope. We have hope that God one day himself will complete this great work in us. Look what it says. This is not up to us. This is his plan, his will, and his power that will accomplish this. In verse 23. Now, may the God of peace himself... Sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice this. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Keep that in your mind when you're struggling. This is God's will. God will get it accomplished And you have the honor and the ability by the Spirit's power to work in that work with Him. To see Him work mightily in this weak and broken vessel. What a testimony to the glory of God when you see your own sanctification. Isn't it amazing? I'm always shocked. I mean, I'll be going along and something will happen and there's this conviction and there's this direction and there's this transformation. And I'm going, where did that come from? Because I didn't do that last week. That is the work of God, the Holy Spirit, 
sanctifying us. I didn't do it in my own strength, but I did follow his directions because he worked in me to both will and do his good pleasure. We're not left to do this on our own. We're not left to pursue sanctification in our own strength and try to please God by by obeying commands more and more. That's not what he's saying in Thessalonians chapter 4. He's not saying that because Christ has already done that for us in our place as our substitute. And now because of Christ's accomplishment, we, we now, as weak and broken sinners, we have one who understands our weakness, a sympathetic high priest who is not there to judge us. He was judged for us. He's there to give us grace and strength in our time of need. That's what he wants to do. That's what he does perfectly for his own glory and our good continually throughout our lives as Christians. Until one day in glory, glorification, we will be made like him to reflect his glory eternally. In the meantime, he takes a chisel and a hammer and he works on us. And when we see the chips falling off. We say, I need to dust some of them off myself. That's his desire. He wants me to see the preciousness of this image that he's creating in us so that we look at it and go, I want to be a part of this. I want to I want to serve you by being sanctified by you. It's his saving work that accomplishes it. It's his saving work that grants us the power and the desire to even want that, to follow his commands. That's why I think when you come back to Thessalonians 4, Verses three to six, I think Paul goes on in, in this, this passage here to reveal not just this exhortation, but God's commands, God's instructions. Look what it says, three to six again. So you're going to continue to come back to his instruction. And he says, here's the instruction, right? This is why I can tell it to you, because the spirit's going to be the one who equips you to do it. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. There's a comparison made in verse five, not in the passion of lust, not in the enslavement of lust, basically, like the Gentiles who do not know God. There's the comparison. If you're still enslaved by lust, the testimony that you do not know God, you have a new master if you're in Christ. And his spirit testifies to that. In our sanctification. Therefore, he says, verse six, that no one should transgress and wrong his brother in this manner, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. The avenger here is a term that was used of the magistrate in the city who would mete out justice to the criminals. And I don't think he's talking about necessarily discipline for the believer here. Saying if you wrong someone sexually, if you sin against someone sexually in the way sexual immorality describes what it is, right? It defines it for us. Um, you are at war with God. You're you're stealing something that doesn't belong to you. That belongs to God and is given to His image bearers. God will avenge because you have distorted His image. Distorted his purpose for this gift that he's given for marriage. You've abused his grace. God is going to avenge this, he says. In this passage, he's teaching us, I think, that God's will for us is that, obviously, we abstain from sexual immorality. He makes it clear that's God's will for us in the very beginning of that verse, verse 3a. 
He does that. He makes it clear that sanctification is God's will for us so that we would know that we can and may live a life that is pleasing to God by faith in Christ. Remembering his accomplishments is what sanctifies our sin. It puts it away. It sets it apart from us. The longer we dwell at the foot of the cross and the glory of Jesus and the blood that was shed, the less we entertain sin. It becomes utterly disgusting. As the Puritans would say, sin becomes utterly sinful to us because we see the price that Jesus paid for our hidden lusts, for our thoughts that no one knows, for our time on the Internet, for our time walking down the street, looking at people in ways that treat them more like meat than image bearers of God. He says, this is the will of God, that you be set apart in your sexuality. Set apart from the culture, set apart from the mores of this world, set apart for God's glorious purposes in sex. And they are glorious. And he's talking about sanctification here, not as a position in this text. He's talking about it as a practical, progressive work in this part of the text. He's not talking about positional sanctification. He's talking about progressive, ongoing sanctification. He makes it clear because he says, Stop doing this. It's not just your position. He's saying this is something you've got to do. You've got to stop, abstain from sexual immorality. Now, what I'm going to do at this point is a little different than normal. I'm going to actually unpack a couple of terms that we see that really are important in this passage in, in verse 3 um, in particular. The first word that I've been throwing around here for everybody to hear is the word sanctification. And I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm presuming a lot on all of us to think that everyone understands that term. As I said, it means to be set apart. It was used of the utensils that were used in the temple or in the tabernacle in the worship of God. They were golden temple instruments, utensils set apart uniquely for the sacrifice, uniquely for worship. You couldn't go down there and cut up a hot dog with it. It was made for the glory of God. So it is. For you in your sexuality, it is made for the glory of God. It is to be set apart as an act of worship unto God when you use it. And if you use it any other way than God ordained it and designed it, you are abusing it and blaspheming against God himself. It is an abomination to abuse the gift of sexuality. And this is convicting because it's, it's something we don't want to hear in our culture because our culture says, no, it's not. This is just natural. This is good. This is enjoyable. Eat, drink and whatever you want to do. Tomorrow we die. That's our culture. Living for the moment, living for the pleasure. We deserve it. As we heard this morning, we do not deserve anything apart from God's grace. We deserve wrath. Verse three, Paul's he's talking about this progressive work. And so sanctification. So we unpack that a little bit. Sanctification is basically the process ordained by God to practically set Christians apart from the world. Here's why. In order to magnify and honor the saving work of his son. That's why we are sanctified. That's why one day it'll be complete sanctification in glorification, because in complete sanctification, we will be made into the image of Christ without the remnants of indwelling sin. Can you imagine worshiping God, singing praises to Jesus without distraction, without selfish thoughts running through your head, running through a grocery list while I'm preaching? No, 
When Jesus speaks, you will listen. You'll hang on every syllable. Nothing will distract you because sin will be eradicated from you. In progressive sanctification, it's a process. It's a, it's a lifelong process. Just to break you some bad news here. Um, but it's a grace-empowered process. It's a grace-empowered work of the Holy Spirit that equips us to do this progressively. You're not a good Christian. You're not a better Christian. You're not a superior Christian because you have higher convictions than your brother or sister in Christ. The only reason you have those is because the Spirit of God has convicted you of those things. You lay no claim to that. You get no glory for that. You have no reason to boast for that. That is the work of the Holy Spirit sanctifying you progressively. The reality is some of you in this room are more righteous than others in some sense progressively when we're talking about sanctification. I mean, some places you struggle with sin that I don't struggle with. I might be able to overcome that by God's grace, but it doesn't make me better than you. It makes me a work that looks like you being shaped more and more into Christ. It's a progressive work of God's grace. He's doing it to bring about his praise and his glory. And I hope we understand that because when we are regenerated, we, we are positionally hidden in Christ. We are holy. And he says, be holy for you are holy. You are in Christ. You are in his holiness. His righteous garment of blood has soaked over you, covered your filth and shame. And when God sees you, God, the father says, well done, my good and faithful servant, because of Jesus, the good and faithful one. Positionally, you're hidden in Christ, but you ain't there progressively. You're not there practically. Anybody ever struggle with sin? You're not fully sanctified then. Sanctification is something that's going to be evidenced more and more as you walk with Christ, follow his instructions and rest in his grace, because it's going to magnify his might and his work in us. Here's what it means that if you are positionally sanctified too. If you're positionally sanctified, if you have been saved, regenerated, you've been placed and hidden in Christ, you will no longer walk in rebellion against God. You'll walk in a willful submission to God in order to honor the work of his son. In other words, when you hear commands given from the word of God, you no longer kick against the goads. You no longer say, God is too harsh. That's too hard. I don't like it. I'm going to do my own thing. No, you will not. You'll recognize I can't do it. I want to do it. I'm going to fall short of it. Thank you, God, for sending your son who did it for me. Help me to pursue it. Help me to rest in it. Help me to rejoice in it. It's good what you're doing. God's will is good. Do we understand that? His will for us to abstain from sexual immorality is good. It is good. It's amazing for me to think about this because when you think about God's will, you have to understand. He makes it clear in Scripture. His will is for our joy. His Will that he reveals to us is so that our joy would be made full by following his instructions and reflecting his son and the work that he's accomplished in us. So that's why when we come to the passage, 
I think that Paul moves from this exhortation to follow instructions to confidently come to them and say, now I'm going to give you those instructions. I'm going to give you God's instructions. This is how you're going to preserve your joy in Christ. We see that in those verses three to seven. You want to protect your joy in marriage. You want to protect your joy as a Christian. You want to protect your joy in the pursuit of sanctification. Follow these instructions. It doesn't look super spiritual. I didn't get a word outside of the Bible from God. No, I have better than that. The written revelation of God that says, if you want to please the Lord, do what he says. Do it because it's right. Do it because he said it. And do it because it's for our good and his praise. So he tells us, this is the instruction, abstain from sexual immorality. That's the second word or phrase I want to look at real quick, try to unpack. seems odd that I say I'm going to try to unpack the term sexual immorality because I think that we're very aware of what it is. It's all around us. Although the culture doesn't call it that. Sexual expression, sexual freedom, sexual rights. That's what we hear today. But just for us to understand this, without me going into grave detail, sexual immorality simply refers to sexual sin of any type, according to God's word. Okay? Um, We can't find a definition for sexual sin in our culture anymore. The only thing that the culture might say is a sin sexually is something they deem illegal. Rape. But in some cultures, maybe not. Our culture is inundated with this, and, and, and they, they, they think that this is a form of human expression to rejoice in this. And God says, you need a definition of this. I need to make it clear to you, this is bad for you, this is what I want for you, there's something good and better in this for you than what the culture promises. The culture is dominated by the God of this age, the spirit that works in the sons of disobedience, Satan dominates the minds and hearts of those who dominate the airwaves and the internet. You need to be aware of that. In our culture, in our day, almost every form of sexual sin is not only affirmed, it is to be celebrated, and if you don't, you'll be condemned. They've turned the tables. They have now become judge over God's people. The term sexual immorality, I think, is, is a term. I don't even know that you hear that. Have you heard that on, on the news in recent years? That man committed a sexually immoral crime. You don't hear that. That's what God uses here to define it. I think it's critical for us to understand it if we want to grow in sanctification and not be robbed of the joy that God holds out for us for following his will in the most intimate and precious part of our existence as human beings. The term itself comes from the word porneus. Can you take a guess at what word we get from that? Pornography. Porneus. Porneus describes, you just take your notes. It describes any sexual involvement, mentally or physically, that is outside the guidelines of heterosexual marriage between one man and one woman for life. So sexual immorality, let me break it down a little further. It includes any sexual relations before marriage, that being called fornication. Any distortion of sexual relations in marriage, that being called adultery for one, pornography for two, lust 
for others, even though you don't act on it, for three. It includes homosexuality. By the way, no one should be identified as a homosexual. Homosexuality is an act, not an identity. It is an act against God in rebellion to his design. And it leads to misery. It includes, sexual immorality includes any other sexual act that is not delegated and blessed by God for the marriage of one man and one woman. Church, that definition and, and the obedience to this command um, in our culture will uh, make you stand out. If you define sexual immorality the way Porneus defines it, and the rest of Scripture outlines it, you will be set apart from our culture and you will most likely be ridiculed and abused for your obedience and your definition of what God says about sexual sin. You need to understand that when you read verse 3. We need to understand this. We need to understand how God intends this verse to sound to us because I think the culture reads verse 3 and says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. You must abstain from that which is good and everyone enjoys. That's what the culture hears. I think what we should hear is what God intends. We should hear a loving command from our Father to abstain from that which will destroy our joy. And we need to hear what His intent is. It's a loving call for us as His people to embrace the greater satisfaction, the greater promise, the glorious gift of sex in marriage, which should be celebrated. I talk to the, the couples that I counsel, and they always get squirmy at this point, all right? And you're probably that way too. When we come to the last session and I talk about the consummation, and I talk about what's going to happen, I said, do you recognize what you're doing is an act of worship and thanksgiving to God? Every time you come together, that's what this is. And God blesses it. And brings joy and union and peace and harmony to the marriage in it. He wants this for us. Anything less would be robbing us. And God is too good to deprive his children of his grace. Following this command to abstain from that which hurts us. That, that will always lead to a blessing. Not destruction. Following the, the sinful desires of our flesh will always lead to destruction. Every single time. In the moment it's pleasurable, but it leads to destruction. Here's why. God is against it. Sexual sin, get this. Sexual sin is the epitome of selfishness, hate, and rebellion against God our Creator and our Master. Think about it. Premarital sex steals from other people and robs our future spouse of this gift. Adultery abuses our spouse and brings reproach on others engaged with it. Homosexual acts, they sear the conscience of two souls and bring God's wrath on both. Unless it's repented of. Pornography, it's the epitome of selfishness, hate and rebellion. It destroys the heart of our spouse, destroys the heart of parents. It destroys lives of women all over the planet because it supports an industry that dehumanizes them for man and women 
men and women for their own selfish gratification. It is the epitome of rebellion against the creator and master of our sexuality. Those are selfish desires that reveal what's really in the heart. And listen, as Christians, we can read it in chapter three. He's told we're told to love the brothers and all love all people. We're, we're called to love people, not abuse people and use people as instruments of our selfish pleasure. Anyone who condones that kind of action, any of those types of sins, anyone who continues to live in those things It reveals something about them that is really far greater than simply a lapse in judgment about them. Those who live in these things, continue in these sins without repentance, reveal a lack of regeneration, a lack of salvation. They're dominated by the lusts and passions of the world and do not know God. Verse four tells us that a believer knows how to control his body. How can he how can he say this? He can say this because the Holy Spirit is empowering him. The instructions God's given are directing him. The grace of God has appeared to sanctify us so that we would not live ungodly lives. The Spirit of God is at work through this grace. That doesn't mean we don't struggle with sins like this. It doesn't mean we don't struggle with temptations. It doesn't mean we'll never be polluted by these sins. All right. Not saying that because you're you're here today and you're polluted right now. You've been you've been dipping into something that has now stained the garment around you. But it hasn't stained the heart in you if you're a believer. It hasn't polluted you to the point of losing something God grants you. It can't do that. It will never do that. But if you are a Christian and you are struggling with this temptation, There's good news. One, you know, your struggle is from God. There's a battle. That's good news. If you are willing to give in without the fight, there's something wrong. There is no spirit at work. The Holy Spirit will be there to compel you to fight these things. It'll compel you to long for the cleansing of Christ. And it'll even move you into action on behalf of these things. It'll cause you to confess your sins to God. Again, it doesn't mean just repeat your sins out loud to God. That's not confession of sin. To confess your sin means to come in line with God's view of your sin, to see it the way God sees it. My goodness, when you see it that way, what do you do? Oh, God, I'm a wretch. Only Christ can accept me. Only Christ can cover my sins. You'll confess your sins to God. You'll plead the blood of Christ. You'll look to him alone for your sanctification. You'll pray for conviction. You'll seek God's instruction. You'll cut off ties that take you back to that temptation. This is what repentance will look like. And repentance is the work of the spirit in you, sanctifying you. Verse five of this text is very frightening. He makes the comparison. Those who are filled with the spirit. Those who are born again, they know how to control their bodies sexually. But those who don't, it means that they do not know God. They're not simply polluted by their sins. They are marked out by those sins. They are fully enslaved by those sins. They have no fight in their heart against those sins. And they are doomed to destruction because of those sins. But let me let me end with this this morning. There's hope for both groups of people, the struggling believer, the battling believer and those who are enslaved by sexual sin. The battling believer 
may get polluted by temptation. And the enslaved sinner may be absolutely stained to the core. But the gospel of Jesus Christ and his accomplishment on the cross promises us that that is more than sufficient to cleanse us and protect us from this particular sin. This is good news. It's good news because in Christ's blood, in Christ's blood, there's a present hope for foul and defiled and filthy sinners. And we're all there at one time or the other. There's a present hope for cleansing from all unrighteousness, John tells us in 1 John. And there's also a powerful provision to protect the Christian from living in pollution. From living in this constant state of temptation. Just remember this as we think about that and consider God's view of this and his solution in Christ. Do not misunderstand how important it is to abstain from sexual immorality. And, and if you are struggling with it, don't feel like you're, you're, you've got to give up. Because it's such a big sin and it has such a hold on me that I can't do anything. Nothing can happen. I can't change. It's too big. This mark on me, this stain on my heart, on my life, my testimony, my mind, it cannot be removed. Saints, there is no sin so large that the blood of Christ cannot cover it. And there's no sin so small that it didn't require the judgment of God to fall on Christ in our place either. So even though you may not think that you are having that big of an issue with this sin, if it's there, you need the blood of Christ. You need God's grace to overcome it. So look to him if you're wearied by sexual immorality this morning. He is able. Christ is able and he is eager to forgive if we will repent of our sins and trust in his accomplished work that will promise to sanctify us now and keep us sanctified and fully glorified eternally by his grace. This is, this is I think, where, where Paul wants to encourage the saints as he's writing this command. He wants to point them to, look, this is the command of God, but it's a command that comes with the blessing of God's grace to give you the strength to accomplish it. Let's rest in that this morning as Justin prepares to uh, lead us in communion. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the promises that you give to us. We thank you for the exhortation and instruction you, you guide us with. We thank you for the commands that are for our joy, for our good, and for your glory. We thank you for your spirit who, who works in us both to will and to do your good pleasure so that we could make much of Jesus progressively as Christians in a dark and defiled world. And the light of Christ would shine. And others who feel defiled and hopeless and doomed would have hope because they see the work that you are accomplishing in us by your grace. I pray that in Jesus' name.